Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Uh, Thank you, Robert. Very kind. I'm the man with the big books. Um, Clearly, economics is now rock and roll, hence this packed audience here uh, tonight to talk about the notion, the kind of big notion is growth. Kind of over. Uh, and really for the West, I think, more than for the emerging markets. If you imagine that we were having this uh, meeting uh, 10 years ago, A, I would say it would be about a tenth as full as it is uh, this evening, and B, we'd all be feeling a bit smug, wouldn't we? 2006, the great moderation, the end of boom and bust. Uh, Economists had sort of fixed everything. We'd fixed inflation... We had got uh, medium-level interest rates. We had annual growth clipping along, 4 to 5%, all very comfortable. And then, of course, we had the big explosion of the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. And I think probably in a way that no one understood at the time, uh, that fundamentally changed the way the economies, really, of the world operated in a very fundamental manner. Now, there are issues, was it just simply around the banks, the financing that banks provided to the economy, the notion of leverage, the notion that they could change a pound through some form of alchemy into 10 pounds and 20 pounds and 30 pounds, and consumers and businesses could use that pound 20 times over via some black box engineering in the middle that would make it all very easy to do. That sort of finished... That sucked out huge amounts of finance. But actually, it went much more fundamental than that. As interest rates were lowered, as we tried to find ways of stimulating the economy or or avoiding uh, a massive uh, depression, which would only have been equaled by the 1930s, um, people thought to themselves, actually, what is capitalism about? The more fundamental question was raised in the West about the way we had been growing. And what was that growth for? And who had been successful in that growth? The hyper-wealthy, the bankers, the business leaders, the people who could afford property, people who could amass wealth, people who had access to capital. seemed to be more successful than the ordinary person, the person who had to rely on salary or incomes. And we've got this reverse relationship between growth and income, and suddenly real incomes were falling. And people thought, well, this great system not really working very much for me. When Peter Mandelson said he was intensely relaxed with people being filthy rich as long as they paid their taxes, first, it didn't appear that people were paying their taxes. And secondly, people didn't seem to have a share. I think that probably there was, for a lot of people, a degree of comfortableness because the notion was we could share in the wealth. Okay, we weren't going to be running a major global bank and earning millions of pounds a year, but our salaries went up a bit faster than inflation. Inflation was relatively calm. I could afford to buy a house. I could afford to buy my children what would make their life good. I could afford, or at least the state provided, a relatively good education. And all those kind of things seemed to unwind. And this whole issue of equality and what was growth for suddenly was raised. And then, of course, this contagion has now gone eastwards. And where is China? And can that really be the powerhouse for us all? 
And it's really raised this fundamental notion about what growth is. And are we even measuring the right things? Are economists too busy measuring how many widgets factories produce? GDP, gross domestic product, the, since the Second World War, the way we measure how successful economies are. What about gross domestic happiness or education attainment or equality? David Cameron said he was going to start measuring happiness. Sadly, not his own. But there was a notion that we weren't measuring the right things, and I think that's really what we've come here to talk about uh, tonight. Um, fortunately, I'm not very clever, uh, so I've asked three people here with brains, planetary intelligence, pointy heads so pointy they will cut you if you stroke them. Uh, they write big books, weighty tomes, so these people know what they're talking about. I'm joined by Tim Jackson, whose book, which he will be signing, I will be reminding you, Prosperity Without Growth, will be available to sign afterwards. Tim is Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey. He's really one of the world's leading spokespeople and experts on this idea of what is growth for, and have we been judging growth in the right way? Uh, welcome, Tim. Thanks. Deirdre McCluskey, she is Professor of Economics and History at the University of Illinois uh, at Chicago. She has written an enormous book called Bourgeois Equality. I'm very lucky to have one which actually still has typos in it. <laughs> Such was my enthusiasm for an early copy uh, of uh, Deirdre's uh, book. She really writes from the point of view of historic understanding of how the economy, and particularly the market economy, has led, in Deirdre's mind, and there's lots of obviously evidence uh, for this, to a great explosion of wealth and a reduction in poverty. So possibly, Deirdre, from a slightly different point of view from Tim, and we'll see how that goes as the evening uh, progresses. And on the far left, Stephanie Flanders, of course, she used to have a small job before her present role as the BBC's economics editor, wasn't overly successful at that, and so moved on into banking just as everyone was leaving. Uh, she is now... She is now, um, now, what is your title, um, Stephanie? Let me find oh, it for you. Chief Market Strategist for everything, I think. Chief Market but Strategist for um, JP Morgan. This is the thanks Morgan. I get for giving you a job. <laughs> Stephanie, Stephanie advised me... Um, advised me about, about how to you know, do well at the BBC. Clearly, I didn't take on any of that uh, <laughs> advice, sadly. Um, but I'm struggling on, limping on as the economics editor. So, um, Stephanie, welcome. Stephanie's really going to... Stephanie still has that aura, which we all remember. Stephanie's not really one to have opinions, but really the judge and jury of some of the <laughs> debates we will have um, uh, this evening. Clearly, we really want to get the audience involved. These events really work when we have your fantastic brain power thoughts, questions uh, as well to add into the mix. So after a few brief thoughts uh, from our panellists, I'll ask a few questions, but we want to get you involved uh, as well, because these events, I'm sure many people here have been to them before, are best uh, when it's the audience leading rather than uh, me. So Tim, could we start off uh, with you? Prosperity Without Growth is the title of your book, this notion of the finite planets and that we really measure growth or understand growth really in the wrong way. Tim, give us a few, a few opening thoughts. Yeah, I think I, I'd like to make a, three points, I think. The first point is that it wasn't a party for everyone. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that economic growth improves the living conditions of billions of people on the planet, but it didn't do it uniformly. And, and the statistics on that are, are really very interesting. So between 1960 and, and more or less now, the developed world grew by around 2.5% GDP per capita. The low-income countries grew by less than 1%. And a statistic that I really like, in the decade following the first Band-Aid, which was 1984, in that decade following Band-Aid, the income per capita of the low-income countries remember, Feed the World, um, fell by around 1% each year. An extraordinary 
failure of a model which was supposed to trickle down from the richest to the poorest and make everyone better off. So it, it wasn't a party for everyone. And that inequality, as Thomas Piketty has pointed out, has actually increased in the years since the financial crisis. So the top 1%, top 10% have got richer. That wealth hasn't trickled down to the poor. There has been, interestingly, in recent years, a lifting of the lowest incomes out of absolute poverty. But work from the Overseas Development Institute, for example, tells us that if the growth that we had seen since the financial crisis had been, in, it, it, since the beginning of the millennium, had been equally distributed, another 200 million people would have been brought out of poverty. And in those 200 million people living in abject poverty, it's really interesting to look at what a difference the income growth would make. If you look at a graph of, for example, infant mortality, you find there is an absolute massive decline in infant mortality from hundreds of deaths per thousand life births at around naught or $5,000 per capita to around fractions of a death per life birth at around about ten to $15,000 per capita. That is a massive improvement in the quality of people's lives as you raise them out of abject poverty. But after that point, things tail off. The life expectancy gains tail off. That measured happiness tails off. And yet, in the rich countries, we're still pursuing a growth-based model. So my first point, really, is it wasn't a party for everyone, and there is a moral case to look at making room for growth where growth most matters. So the next point is, why couldn't we just have a party for everyone? Could we have a party for everyone? Could everyone consider an economy that grew at 2% per capita um, year on year on year, and the rich kept doing that, the poor eventually caught up, and everyone would have this same party? Now, the difficulty there is that we live on a finite planet. We live on a planet with finite material resources. We live on a planet with a fragile climate. And our knowledge tells us quite categorically already that we're living outside the safe operating space of the planet. These are, if you like, the limits to the growth of the party for all. But then comes this interesting dynamic, and you alluded to it, to it Kamar, about the, the, the secular stagnation, the idea that actually the advanced economies are already to some extent slowing down. Now, that is a fascinating thing to be looking at because it looks like, irrespective of whether we all want to have a party, irrespective of whether there's enough resources all to have a party, the advanced economies, something is happening which is slowing those economies down. The most interesting thing about that is, in fact, that it's nothing to do with the financial crisis. It's a process that started in about... 1966. If you look at labour productivity growth in the UK between 1900 and the present day, you find that it grew from around about 1% per annum in the 1900s, early 1900s, to around about 4% per annum in 1966. And for those of us like me who remember the summer of 1966 and feel absolutely convinced that things have been downhill ever since... <laughs> Actually, when you look at the graph of labour productivity growth, they have been downhill almost ever since, in spite of digitalization, in spite of Apple, in spite of dot-com, in spite of everything that we've done that's very, very clever with technology, labour productivity growth has fallen. The trend labour productivity growth has fallen from 4% per year in 1966 to less than zero now. We are becoming less productive. Now, here's my final point. Maybe the party isn't over. Maybe being less productive in this sense of GDP is actually a good thing. Why are we coming, becoming less productive? One of the factors is that we're giving more of our activity to services. Service-based activities aren't about selling masses of stuff to lots of people. They're about people giving their time in the service of other people. Health, education, social care, renovation, refurbishment, culture, creativity, craft... All of these things are labour-rich places. So that's my final point, really, that there is an economy sitting there, waiting in the wings, an economy of service, of craft, of care, of culture, which could improve the quality of lives, which isn't inherently materialistically based, and which offers decent, high-quality work to almost anyone who would want it. And that's the economy, I think, that tells us that beyond growth, 
there is still a party, there's still an economy worth having, even for the advanced nations and perhaps particularly for all those nations. Thank you very much, Tim. Deirdre, some thoughts about, with the historic perspective that you can bring, about has the party only been for uh, part of the world population that we've been enjoying of this growth period over the over the centuries? Well, I, I can be... Uh, for, first of all, I have a cold. Second of all, I have a, a lifelong speech de- defect, which you can grow accustomed to or run screaming from the room. I, I, that's, it's all right. I, I won't r- r- break down crying. Um, I can be shorter than my colleague here by saying t- t- that... Almost everything he said, I do not agree with. <laughs> so, so you can take more or less every sentence in Tim's um, excellent, clear um, presentation, and uh, you can add a minus sign, and, and I'm on the other side. What what ought to happen is not a half hour of debate, but we ought to be colleagues, uh, like your, your former colleague, da- David Wall. Do you remember David? We, we should be colleagues and spend... We should give a course together. That would be the very best way, because then we could, we, we could hash it out issue by um, issue. Tim is a is a pessimist. Although I understand your sort of modified pessimism that there's a world of moderation, which which we can have, though you don't think we can have a world of a, a world of abundance or further abundance. I think we can. I'm I'm an optimist, um, and I. The basis for this is not just that I'm a sort of cheerful person, um, <laughs> although I am. Uh, it's that the historical record and the comparative record is 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 strongly in in in, in favor of optimism. Um, Thomas Babington Macaulay, right. English historian in the early 19th century, an MP, said, why would we think that there's nothing but darkness and failure ahead when so far there's been light and progress? If you take a very long view, say back to 1800, it's very clear that the average British uh, person has been immensely enriched. I call it the great enrichment of the modern world. Now, is the one point where I would not put a minus sign in what you say is that it, it hasn't been entirely even by any means. There was in the first century or so, maybe even longer, what uh, a fr- friend of mine, a Chinese historian, has called the great divergence when the, the West, with Holland and, and Britain in the lead and, and the United States, streaked ahead, uh, invented a separate condenser and the steam engine and electric motors and so forth, and, and, and China and South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and so forth lagged, lagged dramatically. But now we're in a world of convergence, I, I think, and I, again, I, I think the... Look, I have this long book which says that it started in Holland and England, Scotland indeed, in the 17th and 18th century, this enrichment, and then truly exploded after 1800. And it would be harder to make my point, my optimistic point, that a liberal economic policy, a policy, as uh, Adam Smith said, of, <laughs> if I mean in Eastern Europe, I'd do it the other way, um, said he called it the 
the liberal plan of equality, justice, and freedom. The liberal plan of equality, justice, and freedom. Adam Smith is often misunderstood. He was a, a sharply egalitarian uh, person. And it worked. It worked in Holland, it worked in England, it worked, it worked, it worked. And up went income. My, my book, my long book, would be harder to um, argue, to sustain, if it weren't for the amazing modern history of China and India. Since 1978 in China, since 1991 in India, real income per head, that is, the capacity of the economy to supply goods and services, happiness is another matter, I, I agree there, um, has grown at an astounding rate because, because they're catching up. And, it, and it's easy to imitate electric lights and, and uh, this splendid carpet you have and so forth if it's already been invented. And they've been growing it from 5 to 10% per year in these terms. The average Indian, the average Chinese, for, for now a long time. They're, they might slow down. I, I, I don't think India will. Um, China might, but it's not going to go backwards. It's going to continue. So this, this, this plan, this um, allowing, as you say in England, we don't use the phrase in the United States, allowing the ordinary person to have a go. That's the key point. The ordinary person, not an elite. This isn't a um, trickle-down argument. This is an argument about empowerment of ordinary folks. And, and the great, I think, social discovery of the 19th century, which was rather ignored while it was happening, was, was that ordinary people, when free and when uh, allowed to um, uh, have a go, are, are fantastically ingenious in institutions and in machines, in biology. Almost everyone here, it certainly applies to my Irish and Norwegian pe peasant background. Uh, you, you, you go back three or four generations in this room, and your ancestors are unspeakably poor. And here you are <laughs> of a Monday evening considering the philosophy and facts of economic growth. So there's been a tremendous transformation and we must keep it. We must not let environmental pessimism or, egal or equality pe pe pessimism or to technological pessimism, none of which I think are correct, or maybe more moderate way of saying that is none of which I think is hopeless, cloud our belief in the future. What we need to understand is that we're in a world, we aren't on an island. Um, this, this sceptered isle is, is not alone on the planet. And these other people catching up the great convergence, sub-Saharan Africa is one place of optimism. In the last 10 years, sub-Saharan Africa has joined economic growth in a very strong way. Even sub-Saharan Africa. If the... the when, these, when the rest of the world becomes rich, we Americans and Brits and French people and so forth, we're the beneficiaries. It's a trading world. It's not that they come up and we go down. That's zero-sum thinking that uh, stops making sense after 1800. It's a positive-sum world. If, if we can get inexpensive supplies from elsewhere, we're, be we're better off, as the British understood from the middle of the 19th century on, with uh, free trade in food. So, be of good cheer, dears. 
don't. I, I, this, my, my, my friend here is, is, is Eeyore. Think of Eeyore. <laughs> and I'm Christopher Robin, maybe. Thank you, Deirdre. Stephanie, kick us off with a few thoughts. Maybe a little bit about where we are now, actually, as much as this big debate around whether the system of liberal market economies has actually helped people or hindered them. <laughs> But maybe you could give us an overview of, of this notion of growth and the failure, possibly, of growth in the West now. Yeah, I knew, I, I knew I'd forgotten something. I forgot to write a book. That was, uh, <laughs> in fact, it's just, in my family, it's the thing they're really ashamed of me for. Any other success is fine, but they actually, they're a bit disappointed that I haven't written at least one book, so I, can be, I feel burdened by that. But it does mean that I don't have a big thesis that I have to defend and remain uh, true to. But I've wondered whether I should just... I mean, respond to some of the things that have been said, but also the, where the various hats I've had, because as you mentioned, I'm a banker, I was, or I'm asset manager, uh, I was uh, doing your job and various economic journalists' job, and then before that I was actually working in the US Treasury, so I've seen the sort of public sector side. So let me say sort of one thing from each of those uh, perspectives. I mean, I think the... I think Tim actually is the most... We're painting him as a pessimist. He's the most rose-tinted-sounding pessimist that I've heard in a long time. You were putting a very positive uh, thing on it. I mean, I, I sympathise with quite a lot of uh, what you say, but I, I do find... I'm very reluctant to just give up on productivity as a measure... Of, as, a, as a key measure for how we're going to raise living standards, how we're going to improve the efficiency we use resor- with which we use resources in order to... Uh, help the planet and address global warming. I think it is so... I mean, we know this, but, you know, Paul Krugman, the economist, said uh, in the long run, productivity isn't everything, but it's nearly everything. And I think that is just something that is still... You're making more stuff or more services of value with fewer, um, fewer resources, I think, is, you know, fundamental to economic growth and to li- the stuff that's important for living standards. If we just had got back to the trend rate of growth we had for 80 years before 2008 um, in the last few years, our economy now would be 15% larger. If we'd actually had the productivity growth in the whole economy in in the last six or seven years that we've had in the car industry, income our economy would be a third larger than it is now, and income per head would be about £8,000 a head more. So it's just important to sort of put that in context. It is fundamentally important, and we do actually have to... If it's the case that that productivity growth is going to be permanently slower, that has a lot of implications that we have to sort of think through. The second thing, which I guess is more with my journalist, the old sort of journalistic hat, is there's an awful lot... You know, we, I agree with Tim that we're not measuring... Well, I think it actually combines both of you. That we, we, we don't capture all that's important with GDP and with other measures, in fact, of living standards. And maybe that's a problem that's getting worse with all of the wonderful technology. People tend to say this, you know, that it's much... It's a much bigger problem now because I have... What time I spend on Facebook isn't included and, you know, the amount that we spend on technology is still the same as a share of GDP, but surely it's much more important to our lives now than it was then... But what's interesting, and I would give credit to Robert Gordon, who is considered to be a great growth pessimist in this debate, if you read his book, he points out that this endemic problem of not quite capturing the improvement in people's lives has been there forever and is in a lot of the examples that Deirdre has in her book. Um, even just in our, the lifetimes of our parents or our grandparents, the transformation of many women's lives from having washing machines in the house and dishwashers or just basic uh, household appliances, you know, it was not at all captured in the numbers in, in GDP there, just the time that was gained to them, the change in their house. So I think that's always been the case. Even, you know, the issues with the information industry, when we say, well, no, but surely, the, you know, information's free in the internet, that's not captured in GDP. Well, neither's all the hours that we've spent listening to the radio or watching television. It's only measured by how much money is raised by the television company, not all of that welfare and enjoyment we have. So I think that I'm sort of... I think that the bad news from that is 
there's lots of things that we may not be measuring, but it's probably not the case that there's lots of hidden productivity that will, turn, that will mean that that 15% of GDP, actually, we had it all along, and it was just behind the sofa, and we hadn't measured it properly. So I think that's um, the other thing. But going back to the sort of my policy past, and I was working for Larry Summers, so he's actually someone who's thought a lot about these issues then and, and since. You know, I do think even if... Well, people aren't sit being very clear about what the policy implications are. And I think there's a remarkable and rather scary degree of disagreement about what the policy implications are. Because if, if you're a technological pessimist, whatever that is, um, we, don't, we are looking at a, an extended period of, of lower growth partly because all of these kind of... I would disagree a bit with Deirdre. I think there are some one-off factors that pushed up growth in the last 50 years that we won't see repeated. You know, demographic issues, we can get into all that. But, you know, that poses a future which would mean not just lower growth, but a challenge in how to distribute that growth. Because I think even if you follow Deirdre's view, I don't think the bourgeois system which she rightly applauds for all the innovation it's produced and the empowerment of, of the ordinary people. Actually, we're none of, nobody ordinary here. We're not allowed to be ordinary. But the, all of that empowerment, we have not shown that that system can also produce an effective way of redistributing income or making opportunities more equal. Because every time a proposal, and I actually have participated in an event with Piketty here, the proposals for trying to just make a more even playing field inevitably come up, whether it's a wealth tax or anything else, inevitably come up against every individual family's desire to make everything equal for everyone except their child. And that fundamental human thing actually runs through all of the challenges with all of these policy proposals, because we all think it's our right to leave our child actually better off than everyone else, but everyone else should have equality of opportunity. And, if you, and I think the, 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 the lot of the, the advantages of the bourgeois system that, that Deirdre announces, actually, that's a disadvantage in that context. But, but I think she disagrees with me as well, so we're yes. going to have a fun time. I don't, I don't think you're wrong in, in, uh, entirely. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you, you aren't a wrong'un. But um, on that last point... Um, in equality isn't the problem. The problem, to coin a phrase, is the condition of the working class. We, to achieve equality can't be our social purpose. No, I'm saying we can't, we can't see a way of just having a, a more meritocratic equality of opportunity. We, I'm not talking yes, about we can. equality. We can, we, can, we can improve the schools. We can uh, have school lunches or, or breakfasts so, so, so the children aren't hungry when they go to school. We can help in, in very radical and serious ways working class um, children understand that they belong at university too. So, Tim, mm. yeah, inequality, yeah. inequality, is not the issue. and also I'm totally as, a, as, wrong. as a technical <laughs> is only partly wrong. I'm a bit well. Stephenson, I was a bit wrong. So we've yeah, all, all, all got a bit wrong. But <laughs> Deirdre, <laughs> who is wholly correct, we're all a but bit Deirdre, wrong. Deirdre, I mean, the <laughs> point... we know, she's already admitted she might change her mind next week. Yeah, she's yeah, a Trotskyist. Yeah. Yeah. What? puzzled me, what has puzzled me I mean I, I thank you Stephanie for rescuing my reputation because <laughs> I would go with Piglet but not Eeyore <laughs> um, but, but I could not understand the point point. and first of all let me just take you up on your invitation because yes, let's teach together let's work together, let's research together because I'm a big fan of your economic history and, and, and I quote you um, economists are tellers of stories and makers of poems. It is a reality. And that's, in some sense, what economists should be doing, particularly when the existing story has gone so badly wrong. Yeah, well, I agree. So, so from all of those points of view, I'm very open to that collaboration, but I do not understand putting a minus sign in front of all of my statements. I would understand... <laughs> um, 
do you know about imaginary numbers? So imaginary yes, numbers are orthogonal to real numbers, and they differ by the square root of minus 1. So if you were to tell me to put the square root of minus 1 in front of all my statements, then I would have understood. <laughs> but I don't understand that we're talking... Because we seem to be talking orthogonally. I would not disagree with your analysis of the richness of culture that created a wealth of innovation yeah. that improved the quality of our life. I yeah. just would not agree with that, disagree with that. I would absolutely agree with it on, on, on every ground. And yet I can't see how you can put a negative in front of either the fact that there were huge, whole decades in which the income growth of the poorest was going downhill while the income growth of the, po of the richest was going yeah. uphill. And I can't yeah. see how you can put a negative on the actual productivity numbers. Now, let me well, just speak a little bit to that productivity point because um, Stephanie is put a, a little bit of a, a, a light on a really important distinction in those productivity numbers. If we talk about productivity, it's quite often just lumped together. But for an economist, it means labor productivity or material productivity or capital productivity. Mm -hmm. Now, what has happened in the existing model that we have largely got until the last few decades is a relentless pursuit of labor productivity. In particular, by substituting labor with capital and also by substituting labor with materials. That means that for each output we have, until very, very, very recently, used more output and more, more materials and more capital per unit of output and less and less labor sure. per unit of output. That puts an enormous pressure on my sector of hope on my economy of care, craft, and culture, because all of those things look as though they're becoming more expensive and we can't afford them anymore in the economy that we have. Now, what Stephanie has said and what others have said, and is absolutely right, is that there are productivity gains to be had out of using materials and resources more efficiently, possibly even using capital more efficiently. But that is not largely what's happening. And the only reason it is happening, it seems to me, is because of the spotlights that's been shone on resource scarcity, on environmental emissions, and indeed on inequality. And there, I would really pick you up on this point about the, the condition of, of the people living under $2.00 a day because it is true that absolute levels have reduced of, of people living in absolute poverty mm -hmm. but it is also true and this is why I find it difficult that you put a negative sign against it, it is also true that 200 million people more would be out of okay. absolute poverty if we had distributed growth Look, more evenly. But, but, but as, my, as my father would always say about the the, the, hypoth the, hypoth the hypothetical um, hope calculations that you, you, you've made and you've made, if wishes were horses, the beggars would ride. Um, yeah, if, 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 uh, if, 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 and, and, but in, in fact, the world is getting richer faster than at any time in world history now. It's, it, and and I, I think that, I, I think Bob Gordon, although he's a profound student of these matters, and I've no, known Bob for 45 years, he, he's, he's wrong that it's not worse now than it, than it was. He says, oh yes, there were, there were, the quality improvements but in the past, by the way, if you account for the quality improvements, you can make a very good case that the, that the factor of increase since 1800 is not 30 but is uh, 100. That in, in ways we can count, we're 100 times be better off per person than, than we were when we were poor. But uh, I, I, look, I, I'll modify my minus sign, although I'm, I'm intrigued by this uh, square root of one stuff. And I'll say 80% of what you say has a okay, minus well, that's sign. Take, take that as a win. Progress. <laughs> Stephanie, can I ask you before I come to the audience? Stephanie, talk us through why Western economies are finding it so hard to rediscover the growth trend. Is it just productivity? Obviously, 
the financial crisis had a role in crystallising some of these problems. Um, and what are the solutions, if we need them, for um, Western economies to go back to robust growth? Just a small one before we go to the questions. <laughs> I mean, look, I think that there... And that's why I was pushing back a bit on Dearest because I think there, is some, there are some key forces over the last 50 years or so, or sort of post-war through to, say, the 90s, uh, which were a big help for growth globally, mm. which were just sort of were pretty much one-offs, although obviously you can't rule out other things coming down the track, but we can, we can see over the next few decades, the next decade or two, they're not going to be repeated. One of them is demographic, that you just had a gradual um, and then quite you know, continuous expansion of the working-age population globally, so there was the maximum, there was a growing number of workers, and that's the other way when we talk about how you divide up the growth. If you actually take the growth that we've seen over the last 50 years, a chunk of it is from, rising living standards, a chunk of it is from labour productivity, a chunk of it is from using other resources altogether more efficiently, and the other chunk is just from having more workers do stuff, just you know, sure. extensive mm. growth that you just get from having more people. Uh, and all of those things actually were increasing at a historically quite high rate. So you had all three drivers of headline growth, and, indeed, and that's gone with also living standard growth for that period. At the same time as that demographic force, you had globalisation and some of the forces that Deirdre was talking about, just being able to have countries catch up, be more integrated uh, with the world... And you had, you had, and I hate to say this because I know now I work at J.P. Morgan, it will be taken with a certain sort of wry smile or maybe even booing, but you had what you might call the democratisation of credit in the sense that you had people able to actually um, get access to debt in a way they just couldn't in our parents' lifetimes. And that was also propelling growth, enabling this rise of this debt. That was a source of, of, of growth. And then if you look now, I think we've just got to the point, was it last year or two years ago, where the growth in the working age population has peaked. And not just the developed world, which has obviously been ageing for a while, but the emerging market economies now are starting to have a rising dependency ratio to the number of workers per retired or inactive person is going to start to go down. And... Uh, Sorry, falling defensive ratio. So the number of workers for per person who has to be supported who's not working um, is going to go down. And that's the kind of thing that we, we talk about a lot in terms of narrowing the prospects for growth. So you have all of those things slowing at the same time. Um, and you also have an observed technological feature of growth, which is that it's not necessarily throwing up all of the investment, physical investment projects that you had before. You might say it's a good thing. But you have everyone saving for their retirement and for other things and not, a, not so many investment projects to go into them. On top of all that, you had the crisis, which just made people really scared. So they don't want to take risk. So there's, fewer, so there's lots of savings, not very many projects you want to invest in, and actually you're rather worried about the world. So you is, don't, a new, is, this, don't is this then, Stephanie, a, so a, sort all of new that, normal, so a new normal that you think is going to be with us in Western developed economies for I mean, a long period ahead. I think you, those trends you can see affecting the global economy, particularly with the system we currently have, for at least another 10 or 15, 20 years. I think actually over that period we will start to see a reversal of some of these forces that might actually mean, for example, we have more inflation, we have uh, a more... Um, we, could even, we could also have more productivity growth. But for the time being, <laughs> we're stuck with this yep. lower growth environment, and that is testing government's ability to you know, respond to people's needs. I would also say it's changed the way the market thinks. When I was doing your job, and I was running on the 10 o'clock news when we were talking about the financial crisis, people, assumed, people were focused very much on debt levels and say, oh, my God, governments are going to get punished for having high debt. And that was one of the justifications to George Osborne of having all the austerity in 2008. We'll be like Greece. People will think we're going to go bankrupt. We've seen a total change where now the markets really don't worry about debt anymore. 
They worry about a country's ability to grow, and that's become the defining characteristic. If you can just grow a bit more, that's the most important thing, not necessarily whether you're you know, building up lots of debt yeah. in the now process. Now George Osborne's big sell is how fast <laughs> we're growing or not. Questions? Fabulous audience. Hands up. There are microphones. There's a gentleman there at the back in the white shirt. Uh, and gentlemen there in... Are they, are they braces, sir? Yes, they are. Red braces, just to... Fabulous. Sir, and the white shirt. Just Hi. introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Mark. Uh, I'll explain what I do in my question. Okay. I'm helping um, an extremely pointy-headed person, uh, entrepreneur, inventor. In fact, he might be even more dangerously pointed-headed than, than even our illustrious panel because <laughs> he, he's um, developing robots that if, if uh, his project goes well, um, and it's now been in the process of being financed, so it's basically going to put out of work about half the people working in food retail, which is the biggest, uh, single biggest sector uh, in terms of employment um, outside the government. So if this does happen, I'm kind of worried. Um, what will happen to all these literally millions of out-of-work people, very low-trained, who you might... You might say they're pretty much being um, treated like robots now, you know, the cashiers and the shelf-free stockers, but these are the sort of people who we're basically aiming to put out of work um, to make a better experience for the customer, actually. But what's going to happen to these people? Isn't that a key question that I think there's been a big FT yep. series about this? The impact of automation, and can all these people be retrained to have worthwhile jobs or not? What's going to happen to them? What's the impact on the economy? Thanks very much. Sir? Can democracy survive a world of low growth? Fabulous. Very small question there. Deirdre, <laughs> automation, robotics. Are we, all, are we all going to be out of it? Are we going to have, come back here in 10 years and we'll have three Google automatons talking about <laughs> algorithmic approaches to economics? Yeah, well, um, uh, robots are tools. A wheel is a robot. A hammer is a robot. A steam engine is surely one. So we must not get frightened by this Czech word um, and, and just throw up our hands and think, oh, there'd be unemployment, unemployment. Again, we'll look at the long, um, t- t- uh, the, the, the long run. If the theory is that those people who lose jobs in f- food service will just uh, pour onto the streets and stand there. Um, I, I don't think that's historically um, plausible. When people lost their jobs in, uh, as maids because of Hoovers and, and, uh, and clothes washing machines and so forth, that wasn't the whole of it, but that was part of it, um, they went and did something else. Their, their jobs aren't the purpose of the economy. On the other hand, there is a challenge to um, democracy and slow growth, a very sharp one. There's an excellent book some years ago by Ben Friedman, not Milton Friedman, but Benjamin Friedman at Harvard, where he points out that when growth is slow, when these headwinds start to blow strongly and growth slows down, we become more envious and we become more angry. And you don't need to go any further than the current state of politics in your country and mine to see that happening. Tim, um, um, firstly, automation. I think I might have, might have found a place where where I would agree with Deirdre because because you, I don't think you can see one sector in a static way yeah, as right. functional in relation to structural unemployment. That's right. And the question: Are there jobs in an economy? Um, where people need health, education, social care, where we need to build sure. buildings, where we need to have windmills and wind turbines and solar roofs. Are there jobs in such an economy coming out of our ears? There are jobs, even if we robotize yeah. the selling of supermarket goods. So you're okay with your pointy-headed boss, at least in the short term. Um, I, on, the, on the democracy question, I think it is an interesting question 
Um, but I think it is overemphasized by Benjamin Friedman, and he hasn't fully understood the causes, because what he was looking at in those decades, specifically, was the stagnation of middle-class incomes yeah, and real true. wages. And that was a function as much of inequality as it was of the failure of growth. Yeah. And so so there, there is a sense in which if you have an economy in which growth is stalling and inequality is rising, you are in trouble. There is no government in the world that can think realistically about maintaining stability in such an economy. Yeah. And for me, it's one of the reasons why equality matters. Government is caught in a bind, and the bind is that one of their primary functions is to maintain social stability. We live in an economic model in which social stability depends upon economic stability, and in the economic model, economic stability depends on economic growth. And so as soon as you take growth away, the whole house of cards starts to collapse and governments really begin to panic. So what does that tell us? It tells us that our primary task now, in which we're living in a world in which growth is slowing down, is to create a stable, low-growth economy, to create the macroeconomics of a low post-growth economy, to look at how employment works there, how finance works there, how taxation works there, to create a new macroeconomics, actually to put in place of the faulty macroeconomics that led us, yes, to growth, 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 but also to instability, instability, instability. Stephanie, how dangerous is it for governments in a low-growth environment, and particularly in an environment where people feel their real incomes are falling and inequality is growing, whatever the statistics may or may not say. I mean, I think it's, you know, we can all compete for how gloomy we are. We seem to have, we have alighted on a pessimistic point that we can all, that we all agree on. The Gini coefficient on income income has actually reduced in the UK since the financial crisis. The top 10% are taxed much more heavily than they were going into 2008. So on income, I think wealth inequality, Hmm. as Piketty, you know, pointed out, has hugely grown. But income inequality yeah. has not actually since the but financial it's crisis. Right. It's, but I think you, you still need to be looking at the long... I mean, I, it is interesting the way British people just tend to assume that everything that's in the US is true of our country. And in fact, there's been a fundamental difference. We also haven't had quite the same... When you think of the sort of rising returns to capital against labour, we haven't had that in the UK either. So I think it's, you're quite right that there, there's a different um, approach. But you know, it's clearly the case, and actually you see it in Europe, that you can get a delayed political reaction to crises, which, you know, I think even, you know, some of the revolutions of the 19th century, you didn't have them in the moment of greatest right. uh, pain. You had it a few years later when people are actually right. recognising that their things have got a bit better, but they're not getting better fast enough. Yeah, that's right. um, and I think that explains why you're seeing these movements across Europe and indeed uh, in the US. Great. More questions? Um, Hi, my name is Jason Probin. Um, So most of this discussion has kind of assumed that slow growth is kind of out of our hands, it's just technological issues or something that government can't control. I just want to push back on that and um, go back to the the Larry Summers point that someone earlier made. Now, as I'm sure most of you know, that his basic idea is that we're suffering from a chronic lack of demand. Now, if that's the case, then as a great paper by Adair Turner, former chair of the FSA, said, we can always boost demand through money, finance, fiscal deficits. And I just wanted to hear what the panel thought about that as a proposal for getting the party started all over again. Fabulous. Stephanie, quickest way to reinvigorate growth would be to do some helicopter money, chuck some money out of the back of a helicopter and say, there you go, go and buy some stuff, roughly. (laughs) I've actually got no... Monetise the debt, acted directly from central banks. I I wrote something in the FT about this last week. I've got no problem in principle with the uh, helicopter money. And I actually think in um, some of the contexts, certainly in the European context at the moment, uh, it could be a pretty useful tool, more effective than what they're doing uh, now. But the the impact comes... It's not some sort of magical thing. It's just pretty common garden fiscal stimulus... Uh, with a fancy name and actually you probably would want to make sure that it wasn't just giving money to people straight out you would want to do what Larry Summers has suggested and a lot of people have suggested everybody thinks that public investment more capital projects are a good thing 
Um, but whenever you will have had the same conversation with George Osborne Kamal that I have, which is that he could never find any. He used to. He yeah. said before every Things budget, build, yeah. <laughs> he goes to the Treasury and he asks them for sort of projects, and they could come up with you know one or two. And then I said, "Well, you're asking the wrong people. You know, the Treasury is designed to say no to big capital projects." Yeah. Um, but I think the idea. I mean, even Larry, I think, would admit now that it's not going to solve the whole problem. I mean, this is you know, and and he's sort of changed his tune a little bit about whether it is only a demand problem because he's accepted that there is also these limitations on supply and on some of the stuff I was saying earlier about the inherent sort of mismatch between uh, the savings sitting in the world and the desire to save of a lot of people particularly in emerging market economies and the projects that are available and the capital that they require um, there is actually a limit to how much you can just be throwing money at it with capital projects. And it is a limit that possibly Japan has demonstrated because they've done about as much of this stuff as you can do and they're going to carry on doing it. And you know, going back to my earlier point, you know, they have shown you can deliver about 1% growth GDP per head. They've actually achieved that. Yeah. It's not far off what we've achieved over the last 20 years, but they've had to run up an enormous amount of debt in order yeah. to do it. Okay, there's a, there's a gentleman there, yep. Hi, uh, Phil Mullen. Uh, it's a question about what constitutes growth, which might point to, I think, some of the cultural constraints on why there's not more investment going on. There's, there's been a, a counterposition in the discussion, particularly from you, Tim, between material progress and growth and immaterial uh, progress and growth. Uh, and it's one thing not to fetishise material development, and there have been many examples of how there's a lot of immaterial things which lead to improved living standards. But it seems to me that counterposing them is, uh, is somewhat uh, limiting and, uh, and unnecessary and, and, and somewhat damaging. I mean, surely history shows that material development has coexisted with immaterial development. You know, life expectancy has increased, not through some immaterial means, but because material uh, development has taken place, which has allowed sanitation and drugs and all sorts of things. So when you counterpose the two, and I think, Tim, you were even saying you were quite relaxed about the secular stagnation, then aren't you actually undermining the various, very thing which could help not a couple hundred million people get out of poverty in, in, in parts of the world, but aren't you actually undermining the material development which would allow more than a couple hundred people to be fed and clothed and sheltered, all of which are things which are material. Yeah. So it seems to me that counterposition is, is very dangerous. We don't need less growth or a continuation of stagnation. We need more growth to solve that problem that you started with, that not enough people have been part of the party of growth so far. Let's get more of them in. You see, these are all the anti-Keynesians. They've stood up in the end. Tim, how do you respond to that, that actually you need material um, growth just to, to build? I, absolutely, you need material growth where it matters in those poor countries. And, and that statistic that I showed you, that I spoke to you about, infant mortality, if you create material growth in that low-income world, you you decimate infant mortality, that it just comes right down. You increase life, you almost double life expectancy. It is a question, and it comes back to the other point, it is a question about what we do here in this economy. Can we afford still to grow in this economy, and can we, are we able still to grow in this economy? Uh, and, and again, uh, to, to the, one of the points there is how fast and how much technological efficiency you can do to reduce material demand. But if you look at the numbers on that, and again, I do a lot of that in the book, the homework of the numbers, you find that you have to have absolutely heroic decarbonisation, for example, in order to allow the poor world to catch up, to create the material conditions that they absolutely need and still have runaway growth in the advanced economies. So uh, to your point, you know, is it an anxiety? Yes, absolutely. And, and it's exactly the right anxiety to have. We well, should no, he, was not, he was suggesting it was the right anxiety, it's just that the growth should, has moved elsewhere. We should celebrate that, that growth is moving elsewhere to the extent that it's moving elsewhere, and we should move on. We should move on to a post-growth economy in which we don't have to give up the advantages of growth, in which we can create the conditions for a good quality of life, and in which health, education, all of the improvements that Deirdre has celebrated over 200 years are maintained in our economy without trashing the planet. Deirdre, I'm just very aware of the time. I'm going to leave the last word to you. Well, I, I don't think that equality is the problem. And I think that it is a matter of anxiety. It's a matter of ethics. 
It's a matter of ideology. It's a matter of how we view each other. And if we view each other in an envious way and are constantly worrying about um, how many chateaux the heiress to the L'Oreal fortune has, we're going to make ourselves miserable. And it's, it's insatiable. Envy, which, pe- which pe- people will often call fairness, is insatiable. Oh, I, there are some people uh, smarter than I am, many in this room. Well, let's see, how are we going to achieve that equality? Let's, let's pound nails into their head until their heads, until their, their IQ falls to mine. I mean, the, equality, as I said a long time ago, is not a sensible social policy. What is a sensible social policy is helping the poorest among us. And helping the I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian libertarian, as I said. And that is a policy we can actually do. Worrying about this number that uh, the Gini coefficient, uh, lay off it, don't worry about it. Go out and feed the poor. Just very aware of the time. Well, at least we proved... Thank you very much. At least we proved one thing, uh, the old adage that you can line up every economist in the world end-to-end and they still won't reach a conclusion. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, Tim, Deirdre and Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.